We've been studying Book of Ruth for a month, and today we come to the end of the story. Before I share the final episode, let me briefly recap the Book of Ruth. Chapter 1, we saw God was in their wandering and their weeping as the three women lost their husbands and standing at the crossroad of their life. In chapter 2, we saw God in Ruth working. And chapter 3, we, last week, we saw that two widows waiting. There we learned that waiting in the Bible means not a passive thing, but a proactive, actually risk-taking risk act. When we do our best and leave the rest to God, God really come through for us. And uh, that's the biblical meaning of waiting for the Lord. And today in the Ruth 4, we will see God in their watching. And finally, they will wait and watch for God to intervene at the end, not just their immediate uh, situation, but also their future generations. At the end of the book of Ruth, we will discover the story of a two seemingly insignificant and the tragic stricken widows and their full restoration of their life was a more than happy ending. It has a significant uh, meaning that I call it the true legacy. By the way, speaking of a happy ending, I noticed that how difficult it is to make a happy ending for many popular stories. Recently, we saw the final episode of a major movies and TV series such as Avengers Endgame, Game of Thrones Final Season 8, and X-Men's Dark Phoenix. Most of fans of these blockbusters that I saw are not happy at all about the end. And I heard the rumor that HBO would not mind paying all over again for a complete remake of a final season of a Game of Thrones. All that not-so-happy endings of these popular stories are teaching us an important fact. That is, only God can make the, the happy ending. Only God can make the happy ending. Our God is an Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end of everything. As a creator and redeemer, only God knows how to end everything perfectly to our satisfaction. And so once again, that's why I entitled today's message, More Than Happy Ending. What is more than happy ending? It's a holy ending. What is a holy ending? It's a true legacy. Speaking of a legacy, it is a universal human desire to leave a good legacy. People want to, uh, people want to be remembered positively by others, especially by family and friends. So people donate a huge sum of money to write their names in the buildings and institutions. Someone said, write your name, not in stones, but in the hearts of the people around you. That is a true legacy. The good news that I have for all of us is, through Luke, Ruth chapter 4, we will learn that God can, make, God can help you and me become a makers of a true great legacy if we follow the three principles of a true legacy. The first principle of a true legacy is this. True legacy is a made through sacrifice of a committed one. Sacrifice of a committed one. Let's read Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 to 8, responsibly. Ruth chapter 4, verse 1 to 8. Once again, brothers, we'll read first. Ready? One, two, three. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to town gate and sat down there just as a guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz, sisters. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech.
Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from the Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, in the earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of a property to become final, one party took off his handle and gave to the other. That was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. At the end of chapter 4, we were left with many questions, will, such as, will Naomi have an heir? Who will or will anyone marry Ruth? Will Boaz lose Ruth to this unnamed kinsman redeemer? And there we saw Boaz sending Ruth early in the morning back to his mother-in-law Naomi. And then Boaz gets straight to work. He leaves the threshing floor and goes to the gates of his town. He doesn't even go home for breakfast. He wastes no time. He goes straight to the gate, and that's where the, a lot of business happens, gates where the, everybody comes through. That's the uh, sort of town square. And as soon as he sat down on one of the benches, lo and behold, there comes the kinsman's redeemer, the closest relative to Naomi. And verse 1 said that just as a, a guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along, Again, here we see the providence of God. He just happened to walk by the right moment. So once again, it looks like a coincidence, but we know it is a providence of God. You know, I want, one thing I hope you take from this book of Ruth is that for children of God, there's no coincidence. Pay attention to unusual contact and the people that God brings to your life. And then Boaz called him, sit here, my, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Those of you who have a Bible, I want you to underline the word, my friend. Very important. Because English translation is wrong here. In Hebrew text, actually it is written, so and so. So and so. And I don't think actually uh, Boaz called him so and so. You don't know, you don't call anybody, hey, you, you so and so. You don't call that literally, right? English translation tried to smooth it out, my friend. But one thing we need to note here is that the, the writer or narrator has purposefully left out the name. He intentionally called this guy unnamed. And biblical scholars are divided into two groups about the anonymity of this uh, relative. Some think that unnaming was an intentional move by narrator, for he did not want the kinsman's descendant to be embraced at his conduct because he refused to redeem. Remember? So to save him from shame, they didn't mention his name. Other scholars feel that his anonymity implies his unworthiness. He was not worthy being mentioned he, because he's no role model. He didn't do much at all. In my opinion, could be both. And we'll see very soon, he is nothing but average. Look at the uh, verse 2. Boaz said, Boaz gathered together uh, ten elders. And why? The narrator here goes in a very in detail that everything to, to, to convey this idea that everything Boaz did at this chapter 4 was done very properly, almost professionally or legally. The ten men, that means ten elders, means a perfect number. Ten is a, like a complete number. No, not just two, three, two, three witnesses uh, uh, suffice in the Old Testament, but ten. You know, complete witnessing. And then in front of everybody. And the biblical scholars believe the reason for such a thorough recording of a legal procedure here was probably 
caused by the ruthless being Moabite. She is a pagan. She is a Gentile. And then now she is included in the family of Israel. And lo and behold, later in the chapter 4, if you go a little bit further, she became a great-grandmother of King David. So they want to show the utmost care that this is done very, very carefully. Now, Boaz informs the kins uh, kinsman that since Naomi has returned uh, well past the sowing time, and uh, by the way, some of us wonder that if she owns a land still in Israel, how come she'd be a poor? Right? If you own a real estate, you're not poor. But most likely she came in the, you know, she came during the harvest time. That means she didn't spread any, she didn't sow anything. There's nothing in the land. And some even said that she might have even uh, uh, sold the right to harvest to somebody else. We don't know for sure. Now, this kinsman knows that Naomi already returned. We're talking about a small town, Bethlehem, you know, 3,000 years ago, almost, you know, it's a small town. Everybody knows Naomi and Ruth returned. But we never seen him until today. That means what? Up to now, he did nothing. He never dropped, dropped by, say hello. Oh, I helped them a little bit. And he knows, everybody knows, that he is a nearest kinsman. What does a nearest kinsman mean in the Bible? That means he is the first one to offer the help. And this kind of man does nothing. Nothing bad, nothing good, just nothing. So this Mr. So-and-so was a Mr. Nothing. And then now, Boaz asked him to do your, do your duty and buy the land and uh, redeem the land for Naomi. And here, before we go further, we need to understand about uh, land purchase in ancient Israel. Today, whoever is money, buy land, right? In Israel, there is something more important than money to purchase the land. Because the promised land or land of Israel belongs to who? Who is a real owner? It's a Yahweh, God. God is a real owner. And then God allocated the land to among the 12 tribes. And then God told them, what? Each tribe to take care and then keep the land within the tribe. So only within the tribe you can sell, trend, you can sell, buy and sell the land. And also not just any rich man within the tribe, based on the family order or closeness of relatives, you can buy. That's why Boaz said in chapter 3, even though you asked me to buy, but there's somebody closer to you, and he has a legal right to buy before I can buy. So unless he refused the legal right, legal right I cannot buy the land. Now, so when Boaz finally brought up this is a responsibility or duty, and uh, this man said what? He said, I will redeem it. Verse 4. What do you think? When he said, I will redeem it, I bet the readers, we, our heart kind of uh, uh, dropped. Because this man didn't care about them, and now he wants to redeem it. And why he wants to redeem it? As we read the rest of the story, verse 6 said, I might in, uh, He said he wants to enlarge his estate. For him, it was an economic opportunity to increase his wealth. And then Boaz mentioned what? You need to, along with the land, you have to marry the Ruth the Moabite. And along with his opportunity to enlarge his wealth, there is sacrifice he is supposed to make. That is marrying the Ruth the Moabite and save the family line. 
Okay, before we go further, today's chapter four has a lot of technical, technical issues. So there's a one important idea that we need to understand that is a elaborate marriage in the Old Testament. Elaborate marriage is, word elaborate came from the uh, Latin word lever, which means a brother's husband. So widow supposed to marry brother's husband. It came from Deuteronomy 25. So let me read quickly. If a brothers are living together and the one of them dies without son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. To modern people, it sounds very incestuous and gross, but this is a very common social welfare system in ancient world. Not only Israel, but other part of ancient Middle East, and then some other ancient cultures in Asia. This is how family helps each other. We are talking about tribal culture, where there's no social security system, no you know, insurance. This is how they take care of each other. Now, when they marry to the, uh, the widow, what happened? And then widow have a child, and then child carry the family name, and then family name is not just carrying the family name, keep the land. So this unnamed Mr. So-and-so, initially said, I will marry. Because it's, I mean, not I will marry. I will redeem the land. I will buy the land. Thinking that, okay, I will help them out to live, but I will make enough profit to increase my wealth. And then when he heard, you also need to marry Ruth, verse 6 said, at this, at this, upon that condition, upon the call of a potential loss. Because if Ruth bear a child, the whole property go to, back to Naomi. And his investment is gone. This is a call of sacrifice. At this, he said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it. I cannot do it. This is uh, how he did it. And then what did he do? He took off his uh, sandal. As a, that's a funny thing. That's a how, you know, all the ancient uh, custom. And they basically say they give to him and then you do it. You walk, I don't, I give you right to buy the land and you walk on the land, not I. And he disappeared. We don't hear from him anymore. What do you see in this guy? This, you know, why does our narrator bring this unnamed relative story in this important conclusion in the Ruth chapter 4? Have you wondered? Who does he remind you of? He had a, you know, ironic thing about, about this man is that in seeking to protect his own legacy, his own family legacy, Mr. So-and-so, he actually forfeited a great opportunity. Later we see that he could be the ancestor of a King David and then furthermore. You know, he was so focused on the protecting his own family interests or wealth that when there was chance of a sacrifice some of his wealth for desperate relatives, guess what? He became nobody. Does it remind you of somebody earlier in this story? Biblical scholars believe this unnamed relatives is a male counterpart of Ophah. In chapter 1, do you remember Naomi has two daughter-in-laws? One is Ophah, the other one is Ruth. And Ophah left them. Once again, Ophah is not evil, but no good. 
Where's Ruth? Stay with Naomi. This unnamed relatives, he cares nothing but his own family, nothing but his own interests. And he, when, when the sacrifice and the call of a kindness was called, he failed to respond. And Bible left him unnamed. We, before we kind of jump on this guy, I think many of us, I actually, when I read this story, I felt like I, I can be this guy. Seriously. I feel that uh, he, he represents many of us. Because he's the number one thing in decision making is a what's in it for me. If I make a decision, what benefits me? That is uh, his uh, operation you know, uh, principle, modus operandi. That's his mode of thinking. What benefits me? What fulfills me? Will I really enjoy? Ironically, Mr. So-and-so had a chance to be included in the great work of God. We'll see very soon. He forfeited. And I want to, all of us to know, true legacy is made by sacrifice. When we respond to the call of a kindness, even through the sacrifice, even beyond my self-interest, even the comfort zone of my life, that's when God works. Amen? No amen? Okay. Now, second point of a true legacy is that a true legacy is made through support of a community. Support of a community. So let's continue to read. Verse 9 to a little long, 17. Let's read one more time responsibly. Brothers, we go first. Then Boaz announced the elders and all the people, today your witnesses, I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. So Boaz took the Ruth and she became his wife. When he made a love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Let's read together verse 17. The woman living there said, Naomi has son, and they named him Obed. He was a father of Jesse, father of David. You know, chapter 3 is a very surrounding, is a very uh, clandestine, very obscure. But unlike chapter 3, the setting in chapter 4 is not private, it's not secretive, like the dead of the night in threshing hall. Everything is very public in broad daylight at town square. And the main speakers in this book, uh, Ruth story, the final episode in the Ruth story, are town people and elders and the woman. And the last speaker of this, uh, last speakers of this story are the woman of Bethlehem. What does, it tell, what does it teach us? 
The true legacy is always born in the context of a community. You know, oftentimes we think that uh, we say also, you know, I'm great, or you know, because I did something. You know what? You are no great until other people say you are great. You know, you you think you are great because you say so. That doesn't make you are great. Until others say you are great, you are no great. True legacy cannot be separated from the community. True legacy may start individually, but it always ends corporately. As soon as a boss declares intention and dedication, the whole town, with the leadership of a ten elders and all the people in the town square, respond more than affirmation. They don't. They just say, that, "Oh yeah, we are the witness. We saw. We, you know." They did what? They pour out the benediction and the prayers for boss. Look at the verse eleven. May the Lord make the woman who coming into your home like a Rachel and Leah, who built, uh, who together built the family of Israel. Leah out of Leah and Rachel, Jacob has, and then that is May servant. Jacob had a twelve tribe of Israel. They pray that they are so inspired by sacrifice and kind reception of Boaz. For Ruth and Naomi, they, they said, we are more than witnesses. We want to bless you. We want to pray for you. You move us. And we want to ask God to pour his blessing on you. So first thing they pray that uh, you may have uh, many children. And second thing they say is that you may have a standing in Ephrata. Ephrata is another name for the Bethlehem. So they're repeating Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. So you continue. So basically they're saying that you, Boaz is a great man and God will continue to make you great and you become, we pray that you become a great legacy maker. And then verse 12, through the offering the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of a Paris whom Tamar bore to Judah. And the Paris is a that's ancestor of Bethlehem. He is a son of uh, uh, Judah through Tamar. Now, true legacy is uh, again inseparable from community and its support. Biblical legacy is a more than individual achievement. While God uses individual faith and sacrifice individual commitment, biblical legacy ultimately is for the community of God. True legacy always blesses a community. So, do you want to know whether you are making a true legacy or not? Do you want to know whether your achievement or your success is really God-glorifying? Look at how many people are excited about your success or your achievement. How many people thank God for you? That's how you will see it. Your success is not real legacy or real success unless it touches other people's heart. You know, when I hear somebody got into whatever great school or great job or great grad school, you know, I say, wow, you work hard. But I rarely say praise God. Because it's an individual achievement. I recognize that, but that doesn't mean it is a great legacy. I'm happy for you. That's about it. Now, what are you going to do with that? That is a more important question. And I've seen enough smart, successful people who just, you know, passed on their own personal achievement. Yes, my first campus ministry was in Berkeley, and second one is Stanford. I've seen the cream of crops from all over. After working with them a few years, I realized that they will never do, they're just selfish, smart sinners. That's all. The difference is only degrees, maybe. A uh, few weeks ago, on Father's Day, uh, my daughter, Mariel, sent me a card. Uh, she made it herself with her own calligraphy and uh, quoted uh, my favorite writer, G.K. Chesterton, 
And she said, the real great man is a man who makes every man feel great. Right? The real actual quote is this. There is a great man who makes every man feel small. But the real great man is a man who makes every man feel great. There are two kinds of great men. One kind of great man looks great because he makes every man, every man feel small. Don't we know that some successful people make us feel very intimidated, you know, people who intimidate us with their success? The other kind of great man is a true great man because he makes everyone great. We can apply this quote to our lives. Does my intelligence, does my wealth, does my influence bless other people? Or is it just for me? You know, Warren Buffett, speaking about the legacy, one time he said this, someone is sitting in the shade today because somebody else planted a tree long time ago. And I want my life to be life of planting many trees. And that's why he is donating all the money. He pledges at least to donate all his, you know, billions of dollars for the nonprofit. Now, uh, I talked to Mo and Jinny just this uh, Friday over the wedding, during the wedding reception. And Mo and Jinny went to Korea for two weeks. So I asked them where they went by. And uh, I asked their experience. And Mo told me that, oh, Pastor Paul, you know, we covered this, this state, I mean, cities in Korea for 13 days. But uh, my father, he asked me not to skip a city of Gyeongju. Gyeongju is uh, one of the oldest cities in South Korea, almost 2,000 years old city, capital of the Shilla dynasty. And uh, the reason for that is that there is uh, our famous, uh, uh, last, uh, Mo's last name is Choi. And there is a famous Choi family's house over there. And uh, my response was, have you gone, have you visited? Because when I went to Gyeongju, I'm also, my, uh, my last name, Kim, Kim, I'm a Gyeongju Kim. So that's also my clan's, you know, hometown. And a few years ago, about nine years ago, when I went to Gyeongju, that's the house that I want to visit, but our tour guide was so ignorant that he didn't point out that house. So we ended up going to just the museums. But more than museum, I wanted to visit that house. You know why? That, that the so-called Gyeongju Choi, that, 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 that house, they are unique. They are the very wealthy family, kept the wealth for 10 generations. Very exceptional, because wealth doesn't go more than three, four generations. Statistics, know this, wealth usually start kind of a fade away after third or fourth generation. So those of you in the second, third generation of wealthy family, you better you know, focus on God and help God to help you, ask God to help you. Because by then, this very, you know, comfortable social economics lifestyle kind of uh, make you soft and then goes away. But this family, even Medici's, they didn't kept the wealth more than just the four generations. This family kept the wealth and increased the wealth for 10 generations. How? They had uh, this model. Their model was uh, within day's walk. Within the, within the boundary of a day's walk, make sure no one starts to death. They are the quintessential example of a noblest oblige. That is, we have a social responsibility to the people around us. So whenever they deal with the poor people, they are the land, landowner, landlord, and they are a lot of tenant farmer, but they never took advantage of other people. They treated everybody with the fairness and respect that people love them. 
So all the tenant farmers, whenever they saw a good business or good property land, they're the one who told them, they're the, this uh, Choi family, that buy the land over there, I'll find somebody to, call, you know, to farm over there. They never took advantage of other people. They welcomed all the guests everywhere. And they actually made a quarter of their house for housing for travelers. And travelers, when they receive all this kind of kind treatment, they are so grateful. They gave all kinds of information what's going on around the country. So before the age of internet, they knew everything going on in the world, or at least in small you know, country. So forth. That's how they kept the wealth. They didn't use the wealth for themselves, and that's why they have a great legacy. How they, they lost their wealth at the end? For the country, when country was in great dire need, they gave up all their wealth for the country. That's how they lost their wealth. And they become a beacon of true patriotism or true obelisk in South Korea. And uh, when I read their actual story in the book, I found that everything they did was biblical. You know, caring for the poor and sharing other people, welcoming strangers, everything. It is, uh, you know, that's what biblical. Even though they don't know Jesus and they don't read the Bible, but they lived out the biblical principle and God blessed them. Now, how about us? How do we really bring this biblical truth of uh, making legacy through community I mean, through support of our community. You know, we do two ways. One, we do monthly prayer meetings. Monthly prayer meeting, give us a prayer request, we pray. Usually I try to really find the urgent prayer request of the people, we pray. We have many, many wonderful answered prayers. And we share. And also weekly we do in the house church, we pray for one another. I really pray that in the house church, don't just uh, listen to other people's prayer requests, but uh, we need to probe their prayer requests. Don't just say, you know, some prayer request. Trust me, some people who just listen to your prayer request, that doesn't mean they will pray for you. For those who ask why I have to pray for this, or is this really your prayer request, you know what, you can count on them. They are really going to pray for you because they will not just ask a question and forget about your prayer request. So let's really, you know, let's really not just listen to others' prayer requests, but ask them with the probing questions whether their prayer request is for the glory of God or true legacy. And, you know, when we pray, we know God is present. Jesus said, when two or three gather together in my name, I'll be there. And God's providence become a real. House church doesn't work unless we pray. House church, among all the small group ministries, the hardest small group ministry. That's why a lot of churches that are house church, actually we see only success story, but their majority fail. Why fail? Because it's a hard. Why is it hard? Because it's not just a weekly fellowship. It calls us to pray each other accountable. We actually get naked, and then we share real private things even. And the amazing thing is that when we obey God in such a humble and open way, that's how God's glory is revealed. God will answer our prayers, and that's how we know that God is not just an you know, idea, but God is a real person in our lives. Amen? Legacy. We can make a legacy together through the house church and through prayers. Let me move on to the final principle of a true legacy. True legacy is made, I said, the first through the sacrifice of a committed one, such as a Boaz. And true legacy is made through the support of a community like a Bethlehem people. Third and final one is a true legacy is made by sweet confirmation of God. What do I mean by sweet confirmation? Look at the verse 13. So Boaz took the Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made her love to her, Lord, what did he say? What did God do? Enabled Ruth to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. 
Why do you think you know, there was a mention of God enabled to conceive a child? Ruth was married to Malon for how long? According to chapter 1. Ten years they lived together. Ten years they tried to conceive. Ruth was a barren. Her womb was a barren. She was infertile. And guess what? Who prayed for her? Who prayed for the offspring for her? Town people prayed for her, right? Town people, not just congratulate them. That, uh, may God give you many, many children, like uh, Jacob's wife said. Other people prayed for her. When Boaz was committed generously and sacrificially to Ruth and Naomi, and the town people, they're all inspired by the Boaz kindness, and they all prayed together, once again, God showed up. And then, I bet this child, later we know his name, Obed, he was the honeymoon baby. First shot, done. Ten years she was a barren. Just the first night, the child was conceived. Hallelujah! Our God is a merciful God. He knows our heart and He knows our desperate need. But when people of God come together and pray, God is waiting for the right moment. You know, very strange thing about this story is who named this child? Who named the child? Is a one. They named him Obed. Do you see that? They named him Obed. Town people, according to the text, town people named the child of Ruth and Boaz. Were you named by your own town people? No, I'm not. I'm named by my grandfather. You know, even my father. Entire, what does it mean? Once again, their blessing is not theirs. It's an entire town's blessing. They were so happy for their success. That is a true legacy once again. People are so happy for your success because they know how much you love the Lord and that they know how hard you work and how sacrificially you obey. And people praise God. They called him Obed. Obed means serve. Of course, they named it Obed so that he can serve the Ruth and Naomi. And then final story of the final ending of this story is the, the woman giving a compliment to Naomi. Verse 17, woman living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and father of David. And earlier these ladies, they said, the woman said to Naomi, verse 14, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman's redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you, better to you, then seven sons has given you, given him birth. Remember chapter one when Naomi came to back to Israel, I mean Bethlehem, she told everybody, I went out full, God brought me back empty. My and the town you know, ladies they couldn't console her, they all felt pain. But now they are saying what? Naomi, you didn't come back empty. You have a daughter-in-law who loves you more than anyone in this world. Actually, they say she's better than seven sons. What does the seven sons mean in Israel? Ideal number of uh, children, a blessed family, rich family, that's seven sons. And they are all saying, this Moabite, we, we Israelite despise. She's a better than seven Jewish boys. I don't know about you, but don't you feel the goosebump in this story? You know what the Jewish people are actually saying? This Moabite knows about the kindness and goodness of God better than all of us. 
She's teaching us how to love God and how to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Jewish book, I mean, Bible is a strange book. People who haven't read the Bible have all kinds of, uh, you know, a caricature that, oh, Old Testament, weird book. God is a cruel and it's a Jewish book. Look at it. Who are the heroes in the Old Testament? Very often it is a non-Jew. Most righteous man in the Old Testament was Job. He was Gentile. Most righteous woman, only woman named after in the Old Testament was a Moabite, Ruth. Not only that, she was, she's what, according to this passage, she became a grandmother, great-grandmother of King David, the most beloved king in Israel. Bible is a subversive book. Don't ever assume that you know the Bible. Dig in and you, that surprise is waiting for you. God of incredible wisdom and the infinite love will shock you with a radical openness and wisdom that if you follow me, if you obey me, it doesn't matter whether you're Gentile, Moabite, Jew, I'm going to use you for, you, for, for great legacy. Hallelujah. Let me conclude. So the ending of the Ruth story is the genealogy, family line of Paris. So verse 18, and then from Paris all the way to David, they mention 10 people. And people believe that this is a significance, theological significance of a book of Ruth. That even in the time of Judges, when the people of Israel was going through the dark period, God never forsake Israel. God was working through. You know, anytime you think that uh, God is not hearing me, God doesn't answer my prayer, that does mean God is not working in your life. He is there. You just haven't seen it yet. And even in the most difficult time in Israel's history, God was advancing and planning their redeemer, a national hero, David, through the Moabite and the faithful Boaz. And this story repeat again. This is a family line repeated in the Chronicle chapter 2. Once again, Chronicle chapter 2. Chronicle is the last history book written in the Old Testament. That book is all about the theology of a Messiah. And then where do we see this uh, same genealogy again? Matthew chapter 1. First chapter of uh, New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, we see all over. And Matthew chapter 1, genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And then it goes uh, Abraham to all the way David, first 14 generation. And then especially from verse 3, it goes the Paris on. It talks about the same genealogy. Only difference is what? Do you know who's the Boaz mother? Verse 5 in Matthew 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was? Rahab. Who is she? Have you heard about Rahab before? The famous prostitute. The saved, actually saved our family and many people in Jericho. Boaz's mother was Rahab. And some people say, maybe this is, a, because his mother is a Gentile, Canaanite, this is a why Boaz, my, Boaz is sort of a Gentile slash Jew. So that's why he has an extra sensibility or understanding and compassion for Ruth. Because his mother actually, just like Ruth, At the end of, so conclusion of this Ruth story goes all the way to what? Not just a David, the real David, David of David, ultimate David, Jesus Christ the Messiah. Beginning of this book, we see uh, poor widows trying to survive one more day. So bitter. At the end, can you imagine Naomi holding Obed? And I bet the smile, she cannot close her mouth 
And at the same time, her tears is, uh, you know, shedding all the tears of joy. I mean, her eyes are tearing up with the tears of joy and gratitude. Psalm 35, Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping may endure for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. You know, this is the, uh, this ultimately pointed out the ultimate story of a reversal. We call it Good Friday to Easter Sunday. Good Friday, hope was gone. But two days, three days later, Easter Sunday, not just the you know, return of Christ, human life, we are in the new hope. Dear brothers and sisters, God is always at work around us. God is the book of Ruth, is a book of providence. And I said earlier, providence means God is a master weaver. Sometimes we don't see all the threats, how God connecting everything. Some of the connecting of God looks like a coincidence or has no bearing, but if you obey God, humbly and sacrificially, with the other brothers and sisters, God will weave your threads of your life. And at the end, God will show the beautiful tapestry of your life. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your mercy never fails. Your goodness never runs out. Though your presence in our life is invisible, it is also insistent. Your love never forsakes us. We thank you for your providence. You are the greatest master weaver of our life, and we are blessed to be your people and your treasured threat. Help us not to weave our life in our own ways, but allow you to lead and connect us with your purpose. Help us to trust and obey you until you bring the final product of your providence at the end of each chapter of our life. Open our eyes to see beyond the veneer of a coincidence. You are our true legacy maker, and we thank you for making our lives your true legacy with your everlasting love. In the name of Jesus Christ, who embodied your goodness to us, we all pray, amen. Let's all stand and sing song.